Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. I'm Andy Edmonds. I'm the director of the Virginia Film Office. And you might know some of the projects that I've worked on in Virginia being a state with many historic assets. Of course, we've done many period films. And in fact, I've done five Lincoln movies in Virginia, including Spielberg's Lincoln, but I worked on that for nine years. So as a film commissioner, we try to bring them here, but then we help them solve problems while they're here. And what I'm excited about working on right now is a project with Apple called Raymond and Ray. It has Ethan Hawke and Ewan McGregor, a great project with Rodrigo Garcia directing. And it's the second time recently we've had Ethan Hawke in Virginia because we did a fabulous show called The Good Lord Bird uh, limited series that was really, really, uh, really good. One of the best things I think we've ever done in Virginia. And I recommend it highly. So I'm happy to be here with you, Chris. And uh, thanks for having me. Andy Edmonds, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you so much. Anytime. And to give this audience a little bit more depth on who you are and where you've been, I'm going to read a bit from your bio. As I always say, ad nauseum, uh, this is the internet. So if anything sounds incorrect or wrong, feel free to correct me. If uh, you want to make an amendment or an addendum to that bio, you can do that as well. Andy I made Edmonds. it all up anyway. It's all, it's all fiction anyway. <laughs> yeah, I made it up. So just, you know, just roll with it. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Andy Edmonds, director of the Virginia Film Office, is a Virginia native and an accomplished musician and songwriter. After studying music at VCU in the mid-80s, Edmonds produced a music video of one of his songs that was broadcast on MTV. This experience introduced him to the film production industry, where he ultimately settled in as a location scout until landing a job at the Virginia Film Office in 1997. During his time with the Film Office, Andy has worked with the most notable filmmakers of our time, including Terrence Malick, Ridley Scott, Clint Eastwood, and Steven Spielberg. Andy, I'd love to start with Rita McClenney. Who is Rita McClenney and how did she propel you into the world of film? Rita McClinney is my dear friend and my boss, uh, but mainly my dear friend, um, but she is the CEO of Virginia Tourism Corporation, which is kind of the overarching entity that the film office is part of because filmmakers are like super tourists with a payroll anyway. So we are part of tourism. Rita is uh, the CEO and she was the film commissioner before me. So as I was struggling along as a musician, trying to make my way as a self-employed musician for so long, um, I eventually found my way into film by virtue of doing the video as you described. And little by little, I became fascinated with film production and, uh, you know, made a living doing both things for quite a while. And then to be honest with you, my wife and I had our first child about 26, seven years ago, and I needed health insurance, right? So I, <laughs> I, got a, I got a real job, right? 
So I knew Rita and the people at the film commission here in Virginia, and I'd been working in location. So actually I went to the film office and said, look, we need to convert this whole locations library. We had all these manila folders of photographs of locations all over the state and file cabinets after file cabinet. Right. And I said, we need to convert this to digital. And this was in like 96 and it was a new kind of thing. And some people were going, well, what's that? What do you mean? I said, well, we're good. Everything's going to go digital. We need to scan this in. What a novel concept. And we need to scan in these thousands of pictures and put them into some kind of database. And so we can search them by keyword. So we could, you know, create a system where we could easily access these images. And I don't even know where I, you know, got this uh, ability to think of it in those terms. It just, I was into science and stuff. So I read Wired Magazine or whatever. So I, I knew that this was the direction, the direction we were going. So I went to Rita and said, let me help you do this process. And we can send them out to Virginia Tech or some college and get, you know, graduate students to scan all this stuff. And I said, let me do this for you at the film office. And uh, by the way, do you have any jobs here? And I said, I'll work for you for free. I offered actually to work for the film office for free when wow. I first uh, came there. And God bless Rita McClenney. She said, no, this sounds like a great idea. I trust what you're doing. I don't really understand it, uh, but we'd love to have you on board here at the film office. We know you've been working in production and, and have the ability to uh, you know, bring clients here and keep clients satisfied. So yeah, take it on, but I'm not gonna let you work for free. So God bless her. She gave me a job and then I started working there as the location manager for the film office. And she actually let me write my own job description, which was awesome. What kind of boss lets you do that? So come on board. I'm going to pay you. You get health insurance. And by the way, you can write your own job description. So from then on, I just kind of became the thing that wouldn't leave, you know, and I was just there and I just became the guy, you know, to go to, to help you with projects. When clients came, I was the one that would drive them around and, and show them places and try to get them hooked on Virginia. And, uh, Really, the thing about Rita, though, is that as a leader, she was the kind of person that uh, put a lot of trust in you. And, you mm -hmm. know, you have to earn trust, but she gave me that trust, and she still has to this day. I mean, she's the CEO of Tourism, and I've been with around her for 25 years. And just by that trusting relationship, she's given me the rope to and the technology to do whatever I need to do to serve our customers and serve our clients. And it's trusted me to do so, and it's been a great success. And I just feel lucky to do something that I love doing. And Rita was the one to kind of give me the opportunity to find my second half of my life, basically. Yeah. What an amazing story. And she certainly trusts a lot. And because, like you said, you got to write your own job description. It's funny. You, you mentioned health insurance. And I think everyone brings that up. And I have this theory. I've had it for a while that the reason we don't have universal health care is because the second that gets enacted, 50 percent of all the people that work for corporations will quit the next day. It is it is literally the carrot at the end of the stick for so many working Americans, especially creative people uh, in America that are that would love to quit their job, but they can't because they can't afford to lose their health insurance or go on COBRA. Uh, so anyway, that is a total sidebar, but I had no, to you're right. Yeah, you're I right. I mean, what, a, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. What a kickstart that would be to entrepreneurialism and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, people <laughs> starting their own businesses. You're right. If we just, yeah, it would light it up. Yeah. It, the, the long-term effect would be net positive, 
the short-term effect would be net negative. And a lot of times what we're afraid of is that short-term pain. Right. There's a lot of things I think that we could fix from monetary system to climate change if we could endure some sort of short-term pain, uh, even down to the pandemic. If you can, if you could endure short-term pain, you'll have a long-term net positive. But a lot of times we just can't face it. We don't have the courage to to face it. Well, what you're also thinking there, Chris, is you think that that people uh, in our culture and society today have patience. We don't have patience for anything now. <laughs> if we don't get instant gratification, it's just not going to happen. We're just wired for that. It's true. You mentioned working for free. And now Rita was good enough to say, hey, I can't let you work for free. But so many folks that we've interviewed on this podcast have told us they got their start by doing just that, taking a chance on themselves, working for free, and then having a big payoff later down the line after they threw themselves sort of in the arena. At the same time, there's a cohort of folks in film that say, you know, never work for free. You should never be working for free. Um, obviously we just had the, the strike averted with, uh, IATSE, uh, So it's like, well, how does it, how do you navigate that? Do you think as a, as an independent film creative, uh, the idea well, of know, working for free versus saying, no, I have X amount of worth no matter where I'm at in my career. Right. And I talk to uh, film students uh, a lot about, and this is one of the things I, I touch upon. It's key that if you're going to do that, I believe it has to have other value. You need to be under a mentor or in, in a situation that is going to uh, give you room for growth, obviously. So, you know, find a mentor that you want to aspire to be and then be willing to, uh, you know, do whatever it takes to get in the door to them to prove yourself. And that might require working for free. Now, of course, it's easy to say that um, if you have the ability where you can, you know, stay warm and keep food in your stomach, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, I, I when I was doing and making that offer, I still had my side gig, you know, or my regular gig as a musician. So it's a hard thing to express to people and it just seems like today that notion is harder to get through to some people because uh, there's a bit of entitlement of, you know, some, some people that I've seen in various work situations that they are all about nine to five, you know, where's my mm -hmm. check nine to five, I'm out the door. Uh, it, it maybe that's just because they don't have the self-employed hunger that, um, you know, I, I, I'm just wired in, in the production world where it's not a nine to five thing. You know, we work when the work happens. And if the clients are, you know, out till midnight, then we're with them. Or if they're calling from the West Coast or whatever, the the clock doesn't matter. So that that does kind of break down the barrier of your work life balance in a way. But that's why it's so important that you have a career that you love where, you know, if it's something you love, it's really not work. Right. So. A lot of the people that I have in my industry that are that I have friendships with and relationships with, which are really everything, they are in fact my friends that I call upon if I'm looking for particular locations or uh, particular solutions or permissions to do some crazy filming thing. It's through my network of friends that are already my friends anyway. Right. They're helping me execute 
hopefully, you know, good service to the industry I serve. So it's all one ecosystem of friends and work, and it's hard to separate it sometimes. But if I love what I'm doing, it doesn't matter, you know, to me. No, it's true. I think there is, that's a filter. It's a filtering process. So so for those who are doing it and, and view it as strictly like work, they may not have longevity because they don't love it. They, they, they don't, they don't view it as play that they happen to get paid for. Uh, a lot of my filmmaking friends and I think the people that do it really well, they just view it as play, but other people see it as work and therefore they get paid and they have leverage because of it. So I completely yeah, I mean, in agree. Film in, in particular, I mean, it is, as we've seen in recent, you know, articles about the, the IA uh, strike and everything that, it is incredibly long hours and uh you know it's you could tell within the first day of someone coming on set whether they're going to be able to hang you know mm-hmm. it's like it's almost masochistic that you work <laughs> four months straight you work your butt off you know 12 13 hours a day and then you collapse for like two weeks and sleep for two weeks to catch up and you're like, oh my, and everybody hugs and kisses at the end. And it's this big emotional battle you've gone to together. And then it's over. And then, you know, you, you, two weeks you sleep and then you wake up and you miss it. And it's like a sickness that you have to get back into it again, no matter how torturous it seemed at the time. You know, it's, it's really interesting the the people that have that mindset that can do it, you can tell pretty quickly whether they can hang, you know? Absolutely. It's very, it's a highly entrepreneurial sort of positioning and temperament where you sprint and then you rest, reassess and sprint again. Uh, I, I love that description. Why? And actually you, you sprint through a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Sprinting through the whole marathon. There was another one that was similar. There's someone said something similar to that, uh, as well. And I can't remember exactly the turn of phrase, but it was brilliant. It was something just like that. That's exactly right. Uh, your dad was a lawyer and I think you wanted to be a lawyer too, but you turned to entertainment. So, so why did you decide to be an entertainer instead of a lawyer? Well, my dad was the lawyer, historian, wise, uh, intellectual. And my mother went to Juilliard. Right. So and it's all in the context of these two, um, let's say, culturally evolved folks, my parents, that had moved to rural Virginia in the 50s. Right. In a small town of twelve hundred people. And so my pathway was either going to be through his, uh, you know, under his his teaching and learning and I learn more from my father than I ever learned from school or my mother's creative energy. And she's an amazing actress and, and singer. And she studied ballet actually at Juilliard. So I would fall asleep under the piano that I'm actually looking at in my piano room right now, a little baby grand piano when I was three, four years old and just fall asleep while she played piano. So it just got ingrained into my head, you know? Um, and so uh, where my, older siblings pursued more traditional routes of uh, my, my oldest brother is a nuclear engineer with a PhD and an MBA. <laughs> so I, I say my, my brother could, not only could he build a nuclear weapon, he could market and sell it if he had to. Right. 
Right. My other brother, uh, Mark, is uh, was on the board of uh, Deloitte, right? So he was on the board of directors with Deloitte, Pacific Rim, uh, over many huge clients, lived in San Francisco for years. And then my sister worked for CNN and, and uh, you know, all kinds of news and media world and production on that side as a reporter, the sole bureau of CNN and produced Space the Nation and the Tomorrow Show and crazy story how she got into the business. I'll, I'll tell you that in a minute. But so growing up in this town, it was interesting because I like to say I was kind of the, the if, if Atticus Finch and Carol Burnett had a baby, that would be me. You know, those were the two, the two role models for me. Yeah. And, but I just, you know, you, you like to say, well, I decided to choose the easy path, be an artist. Yeah. Right. So I, uh, so from the time I was 13 years old, I learned how to play guitar and I became this little hotshot guitar player uh, at the age of 13. So I was playing in bands that were like in this country band at first. And they were like 30 years old, this, this husband and wife couple, you know, and they had this country band and I played guitar for them. And my parents actually let me go out and play at clubs with them. And I was 15 years old, you know, going out to these clubs and playing music. And I, I was in the, also in the high school band at the time and my band director I ended up, I was, I played clarinet in the high school band and I didn't really want to play, but I, I did from elementary school, I was playing clarinet. So yeah. I became pretty good at clarinet first chair. So my band director in high school wanted me to be in the marching band and I hated being in the marching band. <laughs> we were playing stuff like disco inferno and all this, you know, seventies disco stuff that, that I really didn't like in a marching band that never sounds right anyway. The, you know, the audio is terrible, whatever. So I didn't like it. So on Friday nights, my band director would say, man, you got to be at the game. You got to play in marching band. We need you. Your first chair clarinet. I'm like, dude, I've got a gig. He's like, what? I said, I'm playing, man. I'm playing a gig. I'm making a little coin, you know, I'm 16, 70 years old. So uh, my high school band director, C.B. Haskins, gave me a D in band you know, in <laughs> high school. So to cap that off, though, is some, some uh, great kind of uh, – a coda, if you will, to that story. Uh, many years later, when I produced my music video, and that's a whole other story. Story how I got to that, but we'll get to I that later. Video. For sure. Yeah, but I did the video, and I'm uh, I wanted to see it on a big screen, right? So I found a Circuit City in Richmond, Virginia, that had the the room where you could look at all the big screens and stuff. So I had my my video on a VHS, and I found a big screen box TV so I could hear it through a stereo and watch my video on the screen. And I'm in Circuit City in Richmond, Virginia, and I play and I'm watching it. And the town I grew up in was 70 miles away. All of a sudden, I turned around and C.B. Haskins, my high school band director, was in Circuit City walking past. And I said, hey, Mr. Haskins, how are you doing? Andy, oh, Andy, how have you been? I'll check it out, man. Look at my music video. It's going to be on MTV. He's like, what? So there was great justice to come back around and say, dude, you gave me a D in band. I'm going to be on MTV. The universe puts you guys in the same place with a it lot of intentionality. Did. So for anyone under 30 listening to this and anyone international, uh, and Circuit City <laughs> was probably the number one electronic store in America for, and maybe just on, in, on the East Coast of the United States, um, maybe na nationally, but they were everywhere. And you went there and you bought everything from a Sony Walkman to a VCR to, you know, anything you could imagine. The sales reps were on commission. It was an interesting place. 
it was, it's a, a business model that just doesn't exist uh, in electronic stores anymore. So just want to make sure we clarify Circuit City. Um, exactly. I'm, I've had one down the street from my house as a child, and I was in there all the time, all the time. Um, well, on a quick side note about Circuit City, to go down the Circuit City lane, Circuit City started in Richmond, Virginia, right? And it went I did nationwide. Not know that. Yeah. Wow. And I had I had a gig working for them out of high school while I was still playing you know, music out of high school. And I got a gig through a friend of mine working there. And I had a gig where we would fly around the country and install these systems where you prepare different uh, car stereo systems, a little switching matrix system, right? So we would fly around the country and install these systems. It was a great gig. And uh, it, in spite of how good that gig was, I could have really moved up in the, in the company. On weekends, I was going to play with this band down in Virginia Beach. And my heart just kept pulling me away, pulling me away until I missed so much work that, you know, my boss came to me one day and said, man, you don't really want to do this, do you? You want to play music for a living, don't you? I said, yeah, you're right. So he, you know, kind of graciously let me resign and get out of there. But yeah, I had my time at Circuit City and it, music just kind of drew me away. Wonderful stories. That's really great. And I have to say, um, we're going to talk about it again later, but from what I heard, you really are a fantastic guitar player and musician. And for me, being a musician as well, that that hits home. And I know how much time you had to put into that uh, to to get good at it. I know that you did the music video and then that got you on the film production side and you met Rita. But how did you know you were going to like it? Uh, how did you know you were going to enjoy the world? Uh, was there a moment where you said, where you worked with someone or you did a particular feature film or short film where you said, oh my God, like this is as good or better than music? Well, purely because I was in the creative process in a way that music wasn't scratching that particular itch in terms of, I, I would read a script or look at a storyboard uh, when I was working freelance before I went to the film office. And the notion that I could, you know, read a script and find a location that would solve the problem creatively. Uh, and there's a logistical puzzle around it too. And the satisfaction of then seeing that, you know, up on screen just put me in the creative process with some really interesting people that were also in this, this mission together, you know, and, um, that just kind of got my buzz going on, on that whole process of, and now, you know, I've been do, able to do it with so many different filmmakers of, of different degrees of style and, and, uh, tactics and, and success that I've just seen it at all levels of, of the production process and the creative process and the, the battle that plays out of the van between art and commerce. You know, <laughs> if you have, uh, you know, a, a the director wants to film in the Grand Canyon, the producer wants you to film it in the quarry right outside of town. Right. <laughs> so if, if you're Spielberg, you tell the producer, we'll go find some more money. I want to go film at the Grand Canyon. But if you're not, you have to make artistic compromises. So that's part of the puzzle too, is figuring out that way. And sometimes scrappy, lower budget films, sometimes make a better product because they don't have too much money and they have to be efficient and they have to be creative and how they solve these problems. And sometimes to serve the story, it makes the story better too. Uh, I know I'm going down a rabbit hole and all of that, but that that's how I, I knew that I had found something that I would be satisfied with 
in a career was I was able to scratch my creative itch in that way. That being said, the first part of my life was pursuing my own creative dream as a songwriter, singer, musician. And so the second part of my life has been helping other people realize their creative dream. So at some point, you know, I think I will get back to my own, you know, uh, intellectual property in some way and do my own thing. And I don't know if it's something that I will write and then produce as a film, I'm talking about a film or whatever it's, it's going to be, whether it's an episodic thing or something, but I'm going to produce something because I've obviously collected and met and made a lot of great friends over my career here that want to help me or would help me do it. And I think that may be after all my kids are, you know, off in college and doing their thing, that might be the third chapter of what I do here, you know, just to get back to my personal selfish creative uh, desire. Yeah. And selfish in the most positive way possible, being able to scratch your own itch is, is so critical. So, and, and so important. And it's interesting. You talk about, being these problem solving filmmakers and that's part of the fun of it. It's true. And I always liken crew and directors and producers and the, and the folks on set as storytelling engineers. They are literally, and this is the, the most unsung thing about filmmakers. They are some of the best problem solvers in any field. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. They could do anything they wanted to do. They, but they focused it on storytelling and this craft. But they had that skill, that technical skill, to solve a problem, and then also do it visually, just to do it in space. And I find that to just be brilliant, a, but be one of the most fun things about being in this industry as well and producing producing films. I, I kind of put the cart before the horse a little bit, Andy, and uh, probably for this audience, um, independent filmmakers, many of them, some of them experience, a lot of them experience, but some not. Could you explain the role and the relationship of, let's say, the Virginia film office to the film industry or any film office to the film industry? Sure. So there are over 350 film offices or film commissions around the world now. And all of them are there in an effort to attract production work into their state, province, city, country, whatever. Because when a film comes into a locality, uh, they often bring a helicopter full of money and they touch all parts of the economy, everything from buying paper clips to actually renting helicopters. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, the role of the Film Commission started out originally, actually, there was a guy out west uh, that did a, it was a government official that saw a Western movie had come into Colorado and said, wow, these people spend a lot of money. We need to like organize and actually proactively go after this work because these people come in, they're like super tourists with a payroll. They spend all this money and, you right. know, it's great for the economy. So the first Film Commission was born. And so it started out as, First, film commissions were like a permit-granting uh, entity liaison between uh, production world that runs at 190 miles an hour and government world that runs a little bit slower, right? So you would have a film commission to help you get through the red tape of government to solve problems of shutting down a highway or landing a helicopter in a building or whatever you need to do. So and you did the first one within Colorado? I think it was in Colorado. It was out west. It had to do with a Western film somewhere okay. out there, I believe. 
So that was many years ago, I think in the early seventies or something like that. So then, you know, so people, you know, started to, you know, create offices all around the world uh, until now we have an organization called the AFCI with association of film commissioners international. And uh, these film commissions, we all kind of compete depending on what kind of (laughs) topography we have. And, but it's all friendly competition, but we started out as this permit thing. And then it turned into kind of a production services entity where we would help uh, producers find crew and other logistical things to help them uh, solve their problem and make a movie in their locality. Then it became a location service where you were expected to have these huge location databases to make it easier for the client. Uh, that used to be, you'd have to FedEx out manila folders of all these pictures and right. overnight, and blah, blah, blah. And, and then I remember the moment it became digital and I was actually able to be online with a client and in real time, find a location that they liked and then boom, they're going to come look at it. I mean, that was just a milestone landing on the moon event, man. I'm telling you, I think it was in like 1999 or 98 or something. Then we became, uh, then incentives came along, right? So tax credits, grants to try to attract this work. And it, right. the, uh, the whole misery of that started in Canada, really, where they decided to create a provincial and a national tax credit to bring work and actually buy an industry in Canada. And it was very effective. And they've got a great industry in Canada, uh, thanks to the government, you know, buying a percentage of those jobs in combination with, at the time, the exchange rate was so low. So you can make a $10 million movie for $5 million in Canada. Who's not going to go do that? So what happened was when that went into play, there was a giant sucking sound from the United States of America <laughs> and all of the movie of the week stuff that used to happen. Remember the movie yeah. of the week you would oh, see yeah. on ABC? All oh, this yeah. stuff that used to happen in the United States went to Canada, right? Uh, so then uh, in the United States, people said, well, we need to get in the incentive game, right? So then... Uh, one of the first states was Louisiana got into it and then Georgia, New Mexico, and then everybody. Now you've got the 35 states have some kind of tax credit or film incentive program of different sizes and shapes that basically they all kind of chew off about 25% of your qualified spending back to the producer to bring this work. Uh, so that's, so you went from a, a permit ent- entity to a logistics entity, to a locations entity, to a financial entity. And then you have to be a freaking forensic auditor to make sure that they're, you know, so the role of a film commission has evolved. And in the middle of all of that, you also have to be a political uh, house of cards cast member to get to the political process to make sure you can go up on the hill of whatever state capital you have to fight for the incentives, to get the incentive pool increased, to deal with that. So as a, as a film commissioner, you have to have this creative side of your brain. You have to have this uh, uh, kind of uh, psychological ability to manage the egos that sometimes exist in the creative space that we deal with. Then you have to have the, the you have to have politics, creativity, in the same body, which is sometimes an odd combination to have, to be able to, you know, walk through those landscapes and, and be successful at it, you know, because politics, the sausage making of laws is a very defies logic. Sometimes it has very little to do with what makes sense economically. It has what to do with what can be politically, politically successful at any given time. So that's the not fun part 
Chris, that got into my business, uh, right. you know, in the second half of my career at the film office is that whole political uh, tap dance you have to do. It takes Has away from the been... time where you can be creative. Sorry. Oh, no, please go ahead. No, no. Has there been? Go ahead. I was going to say, has there been a time where politics got in the way? I know you're close to D.C. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Uh, probably unlikely. But has there been a time where politics has gotten in the way of maybe a project you could you could land if you could just sort of work your magic politically? Well, Are there any um, stories around has politics there been that you a can time? share? Well, has there been a time? I mean, it's just uh, constant. (laughs) 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 Because here's the thing, Chris, is that I can point to probably $500 million worth of production that we could have had in Virginia uh, had we had enough fuel in the incentive tank, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that's just my um, selfish kind of role about it that, course we want as many incentives as we can have to kind of grow the industry in virginia and all the states are in the same kind of competitive basket of of, of trying to to get more and more and more because you as you know in our industry there's an insatiable appetite for free money mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. you know they, they, it's it's hard so no i can point to very specific heartbreaking projects for example uh, we were working on a little movie in Virginia called Big Stone Gap uh, out in Southwest Virginia. And uh, uh, one of the producers was a friend of mine named Donna Gelati. We, she's a very successful producer. And uh, she had done a lot of big movies, but this little tiny movie she's doing, we became very close friends. And she called me one day. She said, Andy, I bought the rights to this book. And it's about these Virginia women. And they were African-American women. And they worked at NASA. And they used to do the calculations that helped get John Glenn around the earth. And they called them the colored computers of all things. And, uh, you know, these were these brilliant mathematicians that were from Virginia and they worked at NASA Langley in Hampton, Virginia. And we've got the rights to this book. And she told me some of the story beats. I said, that sounds amazing. So she sent me the script and it was one of the most amazing scripts I'd ever read. I was one of the first people to get to read it. And it was a movie called hidden figures. And (laughs) of course a, a, you know, Virginia story. So then, of course, Donna is like, well, you know, of course we want to film it in Virginia and Fox was producing it. And uh, so I'm like, of course, Donna, we're going to do this. So I started scouting and figuring out all the locations. This actually started talking to NASA because I had some contacts there from a previous project and started to get work on permission to film at the actual locations where Hidden Figures story occurred. Started working out all those details and they were moving forward and we were going to make hidden figures in Virginia. And uh, we just did not have enough tax credit fuel. So where do they go? They went to Georgia where they have, you know, yeah. a big pile of tax credits down there. Yeah. And they've grown quite an industry, but that was a heartbreaking thing to lose hidden figures to, you know, this great Virginia story, you know, uh, to another state. So that do, does the political process get in the way? Yes. If you don't have enough fuel in the tank, but sometimes you can't really fault, um, policymakers because there are a lot of priorities, you know, states have to like build roads, hire teachers, police, you know, and, and as much as we come before them and say, look, we need incentives for the film industry because it's returning $10 for every dollar we put into incentives. There'll be another uh, 
constituency coming in. Well, if you invest in biomedical, we're going to turn 13 to one. And over here, we're going to turn 15 to one. So there's everybody coming through the revolving door with a story. Uh, you just need to find a legislative hero that's willing to take it on as their issue. And it's such low hanging fruit for people to attack because then people go, why are you giving money to Hollywood? You know, they, Hollywood doesn't need any money, you know, but right. it's the competitive reality. And what I try to tell them is like the film incentives are not about money for Hollywood. It's about a job for Holly Smith. You know, there's this single bomb makeup and hair technician that doesn't want to have to go to Georgia, wants to be able to stay home in Virginia and work, you know? So that's the, one of the things we use to try to overcome that argument. But it's maddening. The incentive thing is maddening. I wish it would go away and we could go back to the old days of where we were competing on the best location with the greatest logistical solution, first one at the door uh, to be able to start to solve the producer's problem and compete on that level. But it's just not where it is now. Yeah. It seems like it's a race to the bottom. I'm here 100%. in Tennessee. And so we lose a lot of things to Georgia, I would suspect. Uh, Bob Rains is our executive director down here. And, and, you know, he talks about the great workers that we have in Tennessee in film and how you can sort of get, let's say, 2x the work for, let's say, three-fourths of the cost. If you stay in Tennessee, uh, we leverage the music industry quite a bit here. So the the credit is outrageous. I think it's like 37 and a half percent. If you do your score and spend 50 grand on your score, that's just a, a giant chunk. And so we've become the second or Tennessee has become the second largest place for scores in film. And it does, it creates, it creates this unusual sort of race to the, to the bottom competition and if you're in a balanced budget state like Tennessee, I mean, I think it's become pretty obvious that that rate's never changing. Like they're not chasing Kentucky. They're not going to chase Louisiana. They're not going to chase Georgia. It's just not going to happen. And, and meanwhile, those who are willing to chase, they've, they've, they've destroyed certain industries. Uh, we've had a few people that run or, or own or work in visual effects and that industry I mean, the, the, the way it is bid out based on subsidy is unbelievable. They, uh, they really have to work hard to turn a profit in an industry that was once a high margin industry. So, uh, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big problem and I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, you did also talk about the details of like, you're working it out. You're going to get things ready to go. And you're very used to that because before you were director, you were a location scout for a decade. What are the most underrated locations in Virginia? If, if someone out there is thinking about coming to Virginia, someone in the audience is thinking about coming to Virginia to film their, their next feature or whatever it is they're going to do their next series, what sort of things stick out to you in terms of like, wow, you could shoot at this place, this place, this place, it could look like that place or this place. Well, yeah. So what's great about Virginia is in a holistic way, you can find so much in a small geographical area. As you know, you know, we've got the mountains to the west, the beach to the east. You've got D.C. to the north. And there's never a shortage of drama or stories coming out of Washington, D.C., right? That somebody's going to make a show about whether it's 
you know, CIA intrigue or political scandal or something. There will always be some kind of Washington thing. And then, of course, historical architecture, we have there's tons of that, but we also have contemporary architecture. So, I mean, we rarely play Virginia as Virginia in the work that we do. Um, we can play so many different things. I mean, we've played everything from uh, El Salvador to Paris during the French Revolution, you know. And in particular, Richmond is unique in that we have it's the Richmond is the northernmost city with southern architecture mm. and the southernmost city with northern architecture. So in Richmond, you can play Boston or you can play New Orleans. You know, you can uh. find architecture from both sides. So filmmakers love Richmond because of that versatility. You could just turn the corner and find a new look. Right. And then also you can turn the other corner and find a great restaurant to eat in, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it's about yeah, kind of yeah, the yeah. lifestyle too. There's a lot of culinary scene here is really hip. And it's about that and being able to do the work in an efficient way where you're not stuck in traffic on the 405 for two hours trying to get to a location, right? So it's that ease of getting around, ease of, uh, you know, regulations that we have in the work environment here are pretty good. And then because our experience in my team at the film office that we have such a deep contact database that we can solve problems at the last minute that, that uh, we become a true production partner. And, uh, it, you know, you develop that relationship with these clients where you develop trust, as I kind of maybe touched on before, that you get trust where, uh, you know, some film commissions get the reputation. They're going to say whatever they can to get the client to come. And then the right. client shows up like, well, wait a second, you said, you know, it never rained here or something like that. And, <laughs> you know, you got you to keep the trust with them. And I think that I've, you know, kind of earned that over the years. In fact, by sometimes a client will call me to solve a problem in another state. You know, I've worked on projects where I had wow. a location manager friend of mine said, man, I'm doing this film outside of Pittsburgh and it's a Norfolk Southern Railroad and they have a railroad trestle right by our set and I need to put a light up on the trestle. I can't get anybody with Norfolk Southern Railroad, which at the time was based in Virginia, to you know, help me get permission to put this 10K light up on the trestle. Can you help me out, man? Because he knew I would you know, jump on it for him. And sure enough, I did. And I called my people. And within six hours, there's a guy on a high boy coming down the tracks to help him you know, <laughs> get permission to do it. So, I mean, those are the kind of heroic things you do that uh, you know, draw trust out from your, from your friends that are also your clients. What is the rate, the incentive rate and the minimum spend in Virginia? Well, the minimum spend for uh, tax credit is two hundred fifty thousand. Okay, uh, it's even even lower for uh, our grant pool because we have a tax credit pool and a grant okay. pool. Some some states don't have this, and the reason we have it set up this way is that the tax credit pool is based on your spending, and the percentage you get of that you get of that is from fifteen percent of a base up to forty percent for the Virginia local resident hires. Right, so we will pay forty percent of the Virginia crew member wages. Right. Wow. So that gives you a composite rate of about 25%, which is kind of where the market is, about 25%. But the grant pool will use it over here to extract deliverables out of the client. And uh, I believe I can take credit for We were kind of the first state to work with the client to say, okay, we're going to do the tax credit over here for your spending. But if that's not quite as good as Georgia, we've got a little grant pool over here that we're going to break off some grant money for a deliverable. And that deliverable is going to include 
we want you to produce at your expense a commercial for Virginia Tourism, and we want you to broadcast it on your platform and do basically a media buy for us. So the first time I tried to do that was with AMC, and they mm-hmm. said, well, we've never done that before. I don't think I can get it through the media buy department, you know, all that stuff. I'm like, well, yeah. you know, we're trying to be innovative here. We want incentives to be sustainable. We need to be creative. You know, you guys are creative. Let's get creative. So they agreed to do it. And in fact, we did this uh, television series called Turn by George Washington Spies oh, yeah. on AMC. Yeah. Great, great show. Great show for four years. And uh, Oh, yeah, cool. So part of our deal was they produced this commercial, learn more about American history, come to Virginia, visit Colonial Williamsburg, yada, yada, yada. And they broadcast it on AMC over 200 times, right? And so this was the only national advertising we really had for Virginia tourism was through our unique deal and partnership with AMC. So then we we now use that kind of in all of our structured deals if they have a broadcast element to it. If not, we get them to produce some content that we can just put out on Virginia.org. We did a thing with with Homeland. We did season seven of Homeland and Claire Danes did this cute little video and we yeah. put that up there. We did a thing with uh, you know, Dwight, Dwight from the office, you know, he did yeah, a funny Rain, thing about Rain Wilson. Yeah. yeah. Rain Wilson. We, we had him do a thing about oysters, Virginia oysters for us. Mm-hmm. So we do these little video pieces that give us a piece of content that, I mean, think about it. how much would it cost to get Claire Day to do a commercial for you? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of coins. So yeah. it helps the ROI of our incentive uh, it improves that added value, you know, to that thing in a unique way. So that's what we do. That's incredible. Speaking of incredible segue man here, how did you, well, how about, I'm just curious if you can tell this story, amazing story. As that's why I'm laughing. Uh, the story of, of Harrison Ford, helping Harrison Ford, oh how it helped God. you land the movie Cold Mountain. <laughs> Well, okay. So this is just one of those stories I, I tell people when they ask, well, what are some of the crazy things you've had to do, you know, to help clients? And, uh, and uh, there are many of them, but this is just one that stands out. So we're doing a movie up in Northern Virginia uh, that Harrison Ford was in and Harrison Ford flies his own helicopter, right? So he's a helicopter pilot. And uh, I, I went up to visit the production offices. They were opening up and we'd already scouted and figured out all the locations. So I went up just to visit the production office to the line producer and I walk in, I meet him or not meet him, but I just talk with him for a while. Then I walk outside and there's Sidney Pollack, you know, the director, God yep. rest his soul and Harrison Ford leaning up against the Ford Explorer out front of the production office. So I just walk up to him and say, Hey, I'm Andy film commission. Welcome to Virginia. Anything I can do for you while you're here, just let me know. And Harrison Ford, you know, reaches out, shakes my hand. And his hand is like the size of a you know, pizza. I mean, huge <laughs> hand. He goes, hey, nice to meet you. And he says, hey, I've got something, actually. Um, you know, I've got a helicopter, and I really want to land here in front of the production office. So, And there's a grass field there by this warehouse district right outside of Alexandria or in Alexandria City Limits, right? And it's right there. And it's a space big enough for a helicopter, you know. And yeah. he says, I want to land my helicopter here. And I called the police department, you know, Harrison Ford himself, apparently called the police department and said, look, what do I need to do? I want to land my helicopter here. And he said, they thought it was a joke and they hung up on me. I'm like, okay, whatever. So this was before 9-11. And I, I drove, I said, well, I'll see what I can do for you, Harrison, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm driving back. So this gives me an opportunity, you know, to help the client, to do my thing. So 
I get on my phone and I'm calling my contacts and actually on the way back between DC and Richmond, I get somebody at Washington national airport tower, right? I get them, the people in the FAA or whatever over there. And I say, look, try to get air support, be able to land his helicopter here, blah, blah, blah. They said, Oh yeah, no problem. Just, you know, when he's ready to do it, just, you know, call this number, give him the tail number, tell him to wait, you know, the, the, the vehicle and we'll just make sure they know he's coming in and blah, blah, blah. And you could never do that in Washington now, believe me. So I say, okay, good. I've solved the problem. So then I, I call back to the production office to say, Hey, you know, Harrison wanted this information, blah, blah, blah. So I passed this along. And then uh, a couple of days later, get a call and my staff person says, you know, picks up the phone and goes, Andy, it's Harrison Ford on the phone. I'm like, what? So I grabbed the phone. It's Harrison Ford on the phone. So he says, Hey man, thanks a lot. Um, I started to work through that and uh, you know, we're going to figure it out. And uh, he said, but I, I heard there might be another problem with the city. I'm like what? He said, well, apparently there's an ordinance uh, where you can't land a helicopter within the city limits of Alexandria. Uh, they won't allow it unless it's like a mercy flight, medical flight or something like that. Mm-hmm. I said, what? Okay, let me check into it. So then I, I found out there's a problem. So I, I call the, the city administration people there and they said, yeah, you know, it's in the code, man. You can't land a helicopter unless it's like a mer- medical emergency flight or whatever. And I said, well, how can we fix that? He said, well, you'd have to change the code. And I'm like, well, how do we do that? He said, well, you need to get a councilman to, you know, write up a, an amendment to the code. And I said, who do I talk to? I've got a few names. I called a councilman. So they create this... Uh, provisional use permit thing that we call the Harrison Ford law, basically. And uh, I kept it through this whole process. I kept in touch with, with Harrison Ford and said, Hey man, we're working on it. We've got it worked out. We've got the votes, you know, it's going to go come up to committee next week. We'll, I'll be there for you. I'll speak to the amendment and we'll get this provisional use permit worked out where it'll be in the code of the law work. I said, Oh, great. No problem. He said, yeah, man, we get it done. You know, we'll go fly around Northern Virginia. We'll check out location. I'm like, yeah, okay, that'll be awesome. Cool, let's do it. So I go through all this stuff and we go up to the thing. We get it through the council and we get permission to do it. They, they said, the only way you can do it is you've got to have a fire department there, fire truck there that you need to pay for. He's like, fine. And you have all the safety people standing by. Went through all this stuff, got it done. The guy did it one time, landed his helicopter <laughs> one time. <laughs> And out of all this, you know, I'm thinking about, dude, you know, Reagan National Airport is literally three quarters of a mile from this production <laughs> office. How about a limo? You know, you couldn't land your helicopter there and get in a limo and come. But no, he couldn't do it. And then, of course, after all this, you know, I, he, we never got him a ride on the helicopter to show him locations around Virginia. But what happened was. Sidney Pollack kind of seeing this whole interaction that he, that Harrison was having with the film commissioner, uh, I you know, came closer to him and he kind of saw how hard I was working to try to keep his actor happy, you know? So we became pretty tight and, uh, sure enough, then he said, Hey man, uh, working on this, this, this civil war thing, you guys in Virginia probably have a lot of great civil war stuff, right? I'm like, Oh yeah, we kind of have a little bit of that stuff. So yeah. working on this thing called mountain. So maybe we can make something happen. So sure enough, then Colbert Mountain started working forward and a great director, Anthony Miguela, uh, you know, came into town and we scouted with him and Dante Ferretti, this incredible production designer. And we figured out all the locations of Virginia to make Cold Mountain. We had a perfect the place where they were going to do the battle of the crater with the explosion and all these battle scenes. And we had the entire movie wired up right here in Virginia. 
and we were going to do it. And then Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> oh, Harvey. who's the producer of the thing, uh, got a deal with the Romanian army where they could use the entire Romanian army as extras for like, you know, $125. Right. So then they took, (laughs) yeah, they took the whole movie to Romania and built an entire town, you know, cause you carpenters there literally for like a dollar an hour back then or less. They built this entire town over there, but we did get a piece of it. We ended up getting, you know, five or six days of it in Virginia and Colonial Williamsburg and around Richmond. So we got them to film part of the movie here that I must say is probably the most authentic looking piece of the film because the rest of it in Romania, the trees were not right for North Carolina where it was supposed to be set uh, by any means. But I became friends with with Pollock there. And then to kind of carry the for, carry it forward, uh, a couple of years later, uh, Sidney Pollock is a guest of ours at the Virginia Film Festival in Charlottesville and UVA. And so, uh, you know, I'm on the board of the festival and Sydney was coming in. And one of the things I do when we have high profile guests, I'm kind of the guy that takes them around and, you know, right. make sure they get where they're going to go and let's go get some dinner and yada, yada. So I knew Sydney. So I was wired up with him and he said, Hey man, I'm coming in my new jet. You got to meet me at the airport. I'm like, all right. So I go out, he pulls into the Charlottesville airport in this brand new Gulf Stream, I think it was a G5. I don't even know what the hell they're called, but it was a <laughs> badass, looked like a warthog jet, you know, and it was yeah. brand new. So I, I stepped onto it. He said, come on up, check it out. So I walk in, he had literally off the showroom floor. It had that new jet smell when you walked yeah. into the cabin. Yeah. Amazing thing. So then I take him, we go, and we go to this thing, and we're honoring him. I think it was the 25th anniversary of the movie Tootsie, right? Yes. I'm taking him in. He's getting his award, a lifetime achievement award, Thomas Jefferson award from the film festival and everything. And uh, before he was going to get the award, I said, uh, I said, uh, Sydney, when's the last time you saw this movie? He said, man, I haven't seen it since I made it 25 years ago. I'm like, you're kidding me. He said, no, really? I said, no, we need to, we need to watch it. You need to stay and watch it. He said, yeah, all right. So I sat down next to Sydney Pollack and got to watch Tootsie for the first time. The dude, had seen it in 25 years and maybe the last time he saw it, uh, sadly. But then the other thing, we were walking down the promenade in the mall area of Charlottesville during the festival. And there's a regular Cineplex on the mall. Yeah. And uh, a David Lynch movie was being advertised. It was not part of the film festival, uh, but it was Mulholland Drive, you know, was uh, playing yeah. Yeah. Yeah, at, at, at this cinema complex. We walked past the poster and I said, man, I really want to see that. He said, yeah, I want to see it too. I haven't seen it yet. I said, let's go see it. He's like, all right. <laughs> so we walk in, duck in the theater, not part of the festival. And I sit down with Sidney Pollack, you know, next to him, one chair between us to not be weird, right? But, you know, I'm sitting yeah. next to him <laughs> and we watch Mulholland Drive, which I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's a strange and amazing film, but it's weird. It yeah. And at the end of the movie, we both looked at each other and we said, I don't know what the hell that was about, but it sure was freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was great, man. He was a great guy, but that's that's my Pollock story. And that's that's kind of how Cold Mountain happens. It's, you know, through these relationships and friendships you make and you just be a good friend and you make good friends. Thank you so much for that. That was fantastic and multi-layered as I knew it would be. And Andy Edmonds, the man who will change the law for you. 
what what <laughs> what better endorsement to come film in Virginia is there than than that? Like a guy who will get on the mat for you. That is look, yeah. Virginia's incredible. for lovers and Virginia's for law changers. <laughs> <laughs> and Virginia's for film lovers as well. That's right. As I know you like to say. You have some other big movies. Uh, that World War of the Worlds, Mission Impossible Three, National Treasure, Book of Secrets. Uh, is there any film that's the most memorable to you, uh, or any one that was the most challenging to to land or to shoot that sticks out? A couple of them. Um, having been born and raised in Virginia, um, it was really a highlight to be able to produce or be involved in the production of the New World, Terrence Malick's film about the Jamestown story of Pocahontas mm-hmm. and John Smith. Because as a kid in Virginia, you grow up in elementary school and you build that Jamestown fort out of popsicle sticks, you know? And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of part of your youth. And then you go visit Jamestown in elementary school as a, on a school trip. So, you know, having that kind of in the back of my mind and then being able as an adult to go out and build this stuff and, you know, make it happen and then see such a master artist as Terrence Malick, uh, you know, to, to do his thing was just incredible. And then Jack Fisk, his production designer and, and partner to see how he put things together. It, it was so authentic that Jack built the fort, you know, with real raw materials. Usually in Hollywood, you would make some kind of composite to build the logs, but no, they cut logs with the same tools. And it was just crazy. They built the fort and actually, so Jack, we actually found a place right around the corner from the actual Jamestown to build this fort. So the topography was almost identical with the right cypress trees and everything. Yeah. And Jack was using his best estimate to determine where certain points of the fort, what they would have looked like because there was no archaeological evidence over at the actual site. Right. So Jack was just kind of looking at the materials and saying, how would I build this? If I'm in, you know, Virginia in 1607, what kind of trees would be here and how would I build it and what techniques and yada, yada. And he built the fort his best guess. Uh, Fast forward about two or three years later, they actually made discoveries at the archaeological site that verified what Jack had built for the movie that was exactly the right dimensions and the right technique. I mean, it was really crazy. And so the other little kind of side story on that is some of the crazy things we do. So as part of the the film, we had to have a couple of period ships, like a 1607 ship. Now, Jamestown has a couple of appropriate ships because it's depicting the period. Right. And we needed one of them and we were going to use the Godspeed and they had built a new Godspeed. So they had an extra Godspeed. So we needed to get the Godspeed around the horn and up through this bridge and up to the set, right? About nine miles away. And uh, we had to go through a bunch of drama to get permission, but we finally got permission to get the ship going. So I was worried about this bridge that it had to come through, which was a very old drawbridge. It was one of those drawbridges that turned sideways. It wasn't one that goes up. It was okay. really old and kind of rusty. So I called my department Terrifying. of, um, yeah, I called my department of transportation people. I said, Hey man, this bridge is going to open down there. And said, Oh yeah, we open it all the time. We open it like every other week. Not a problem. It'll open. Cool. I'm like, all right. So, uh, I'm moving forward. We're in like March. We're going to start filming mid July. Uh, and then I pick up the paper one day back when we were still looking at newspapers mm-hmm. and I pick it up and I see a little headline. It says, uh, Barrett's Ferry Bridge closed indefinitely due to 
failure. <laughs> and I see this and I'm like, oh my God, you know, we're like two and a half months out. We have got to get the ship up to this $3 million set they built or we are totally screwed and the producer is going to right. kill me. Right. So my first brain, my, my brain starts going through, well, we got to get a Sikorsky helicopter and strap the ship and lift it up over and get it through. Or we need to cut the mass off the ship and get it under and then reattach the mass or some crazy stuff. So, you know, what do you do? You call the governor. So, uh, <laughs> right. you know, I said, look, we got a problem here. This is really high stakes, millions of dollars on the line. This bridge has got to open. Because by this time, the VDOT, you know, Department of Transportation said, oh, well, yeah, we're, we've got it there for bids. You know, we're going to get it done. Uh, it'll probably get done next March. You know, I'm like, no. Yeah. So I call the governor. We get in touch with the governor and we say, look, this is what the problem is. And to his credit, Mark Warner at the time, uh, he said, all right, get it done. Tell him you got to get it done. So they actually they put barges and cranes and equipment and they brought it in within days and started working on that bridge and worked for you know, like two months to get the thing operational again. Wow. And actually they got it to open the day before it had to go through. So I was down there with a camcorder on the day <laughs> that bridge opened, just shooting the thing opening and the ship coming through. And then we got the movie made, but that's just one of those little crazy, you know, film commission stories. we got it done, but that was an amazing film. The other film that just moves me in such a profound way that was an unbelievable experience was a movie called loving that Jeff mm -hmm. Nichols uh, wrote and directed. And it's based on the true story of uh, the, the couple whose last name was loving Richard loving uh, and the interracial couple that mm -hmm. uh, got married in the early sixties in Virginia and were arrested because it was illegal to get married as an interracial couple in the sixties uh, in Virginia. So this was the story of that, you know, this movie about that love story and just an amazing trial and an amazing result and just such a powerful, subtle performance by Joel Edgerton was just incredible. And mm -hmm. Ruth Nega, uh, it was just an incredible movie. And I just think one of the, the best things we've ever done. It's just so powerful to be involved that having been born and raised in Virginia and experienced this racism and seen it, you know, and the small town as I get back to that I grew up in where there was racially divided, but I was raised by more culturally evolved uh, forward thinking people that taught me the right thing about inclusion and, and, uh, and uh, not being in no discrimination. And so it just, it was just kind of a great uh, kind of payoff for having experienced and seen that to be able to tell that story and bring justice to these people. And then, I went to the film festival to introduce the film uh, the next year after we produced it. And so we're at the film festival. And one of the things I said is that, look, back when uh, uh, Richard and Mildred Loving were, were here, they couldn't, they had to sit in the balcony at the top of the theater in the back. Mm. But tonight, not only do we put them in the front row, but they're on the screen and you're here to see them. I mean, it was just great poetry and poetic justice that that happened. Absolutely. And, that movie meant a lot to me. I'd known a little bit about it before the movie was made simply because it affected my life. My dad is German and my mom is black and they got married in 72. Tennessee had gotten pressure to uh, 
I guess, annul the law that prevented interracial marriage, I believe in 70 or 71, based on the result of the Loving case in Virginia. So if that hadn't happened, I just wouldn't be sitting here in front of you in the same way. My dad is also a product of adoption. I know adoptions touched your lives with your two sons from Ghana. So all in all, we have a we have that in common. And it I think without that case, it would have been just a harder life for us both. That's amazing that this all comes back around, man. We've we've met for a reason, you know. Yep. I love that. I love the magic of all that, man. And actually loving from versus Virginia was the case that they cited uh to uh, with the gay marriage, uh, you know, laws that, that it, without loving versus Virginia, they would not have had that precedent as well. So it's very important, uh, important piece of justice for America that, you know, I hope we hold on to what those important things are. And in spite of some of the, you know, kicking and screaming into the 21st century coming from some parts of our population that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think it, the, the core base of America knows what's right, you know, and hopefully we will we will get there together instead of dividing and letting these issues divide us. Right. Yeah. As I've read and heard you say in my research, uh, the answer is love. hundred percent. Totally believe that. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions. So speed round. Oh, the lightning round. The lightning round. All right. Yep. Do I get yeah. extra bonus for this? You do, but you don't have to go fast just because I'm going fast. So feel free to answer completely and fully as as you'd like. Um, well, as you see, I, I I don't have any short answers apparently because <laughs> I just talk and talk and talk and talk. So I'm sorry. That happens to be great for our podcast. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. It's a podcast. We can talk as long as we want. That's right. Uh, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far? And who did they come from? Well, um, you know, I, I'm not really sure where this came from, but it's advice that I share with people uh, that is pretty common. I guess people have heard this in different forms, um, but really that, that, and I tell, you know, students and young people trying to get into the industry that your destiny lies at the intersection of your preparation and opportunity. You know, so you, you have to put in your 10,000 hours in whatever you do, and then that will create your own luck that when that window opens, you're ready to go through it. And then that's your destiny. I mean, that is such a key thing. You know, nothing is going to be handed to you that if you follow that mantra, uh, that is just, you know, kind of the North star there that you do the work, the luck will come. And then you'll be ready to go through and that's your destiny. I think that's one of the best things I, I received. Uh, and then hopefully one of the better things that I pass on to people. Um, and then I, I just, you know, my father taught me a lot about the importance of, of trust, you know, and, and mm -hmm. being able to, to um, the, the one thing that you can create yourself or destroy yourself is your credibility, right? Yeah. So you, you, you really establish good credibility that you're going to show up on time. You're going to get the job done. You're going to do the best you can. And then people will trust you to get it. And trust is just a, a more valuable commodity than uh, financial wealth for sure. 
you know, one of the things I learned being a film investor and an executive producer in the films is that accountability in and of itself is leverage and that people will pay you for your accountability, your willingness to put your name on it and then stand by it publicly. And if you do that, even when you fail, you'll still have your trust and respect as you, as you mentioned, um, you talked about going into the 21st century and, and moving forward. If you could provide filmmakers with one piece of advice today, what would it be? Well, I would start of that with the obvious that when I used to tell my kids that when I was their age, when they were young, that when I was their age, I had three television stations to choose from. <laughs> uh, and they look at me like I'm an alien. Right? right. And then of course they say, well, why didn't you just go to the internet? You know, they just don't get it. Uh, but we had three television stations to choose from. And now, you know, there's, it's infinite. The number of channels, literally, you know, with YouTube and, uh, and Hulu and Apple and all the streaming services, but add YouTube to it and add the fact that with this thing right here, you know, we're all broadcasters, right? So that just creates this opportunity as we talked before we started recording of you to be a storyteller directly to the consumer in unique ways that are uh, just starting to be tapped and monetized in a way that uh, you can really be in control of your own destiny as a storyteller, as a songwriter, as a creator. And when you combine that where we are right now, I just think that we're still in the infancy of that capability. As you start to, um, you know, go more into AR and VR and AI where that's going to go. I mean, who knows? We're going to be experiencing entertainment in multi-sensory ways that we don't even quite understand yet, but that just creates opportunity for, for people to be innovative uh, in this space. For example, in the, in the AR and VR space, telling story in that world is different from a normal uh, narrative thing, right? So it's like yeah. multi-dimensional storytelling that, that's just a space that if you learn how to crack that nut, like no one, no one is yet to get the Blair Witch Project of VR storytelling. You know what I mean? There's, right. there's some good ones out there, but it's still kind of gimmicky. Right. And we're still uh, in the um, we're still the hang up of the goggles are still, I think, a blocking force to for us to really experience it. Uh, the way it will be in the future some way. Um, but there, there's just so many opportunities. So, so my, that's the kind of high level tech opportunity that's there, but down to its kind of core elements that it's still old fashioned relationships, you know, that you're going to make that if you're in college and you're in film school, or even if you're not, whatever, but if you're on a film set, the way you get your next job is through the friends you've made on that set. What's next? What are you going to do? And if you work on that set and you show that you can get the job done, a lot of people can get the job done. But if you're the person that has the social skills and the human skills and the empathy and the willing to listen more than you talk uh, that and become a good friend that's the person that will have more opportunities to succeed is that network of friends of kind of checking your ego and realizing that people can bring things to the table that you may not have thought of. I mean, filmmaking, as you know, is a 
very collaborative process. And I've seen all different types of people that do it and people that try to do it by screaming. Uh, sometimes they, they get things done, but you know, at what cost of the human experience, you know, right. that, 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 uh, that leaves people with. So, you know, being able to have an open mind and collaborate you can make better art at the end of the day, I, I believe. That will be more fulfilling to more people. Uh, so that's my advice about that piece. I'm sorry, that's a very long lightning round answer. Sorry, man. <laughs> no, there's so much to dig into on it. Uh, what you described is something I call the fifth wave of filmmaking. And it's the moment where techno the, the technical, the technological part of, of the process of being that broadcaster is democratized. So meaning I don't need to go hire a full stack developer to build something that can broadcast me. And I don't have to lean on necessarily uh, some social media application because what will happen is creators will wake up and realize they are actually working at no cost for the benefit of a giant tech company. Exactly. And, And that if they stop creating for these sites, those sites will fail. Their stock will plummet. And you can already see this happening on certain sites right now. It, it's hard to do it as a group because you have to tell everybody, hey, stop creating. But what will happen is, is it will just be organic where it'll be like, wait, the technology for me to do it is already there. I don't have to rely on Zucks, Mark Zuckerberg anymore to promote myself. I can build the technology. I can create the Andy Edmonds channel. And now I'm just pushing my own stuff out and, and can monetize it any way I want versus depending on someone else's. So I think that's going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years, that sort of fifth wave of, of filmmaking. Uh, you are around well, a lot of films. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'd love to well, say, uh, you know, you're, you're so right, but also it's just amazes me the technology in this phone, you know, it's just blows my mind that I I recently, you know, recorded a tune through the pandemic, a song that I did. And, um, we finished it and we actually mastered it at Abbey road studios, which was pretty cool to do that. And then my, my friend producer, Jody Boyd, uh, who has an amazing studio in in Richmond said, man, you know, the tune's really good and, uh, you got to do a music video. I'm like, okay. So I'm starting to like try to figure out how to gather my guys together and let's go do a music video. And I'm trying to put together a budget and I'm probably going to spend 15,000 minimum on a decent music video, maybe more. And trying to like, scrape that together. And then I said, you know what? This is a really kind of personal tune. And I'm going to start looking at my home footage that I have on my phone. So I go to iMovie on my phone. I put the track on the phone. And I start with fingers, just start pulling down little clips of video from my phone into yeah. iMovie. Start editing together with my index finger. And in about you know an hour, I had a three and a half minute music video that kind of had a narrative theme through the whole thing, just because I, I shoot a lot of footage when I'm traveling or whatever, and, and with the family and kids and stuff. So it all made sense. And I'm thinking, wow, man, I'm able to do that just sitting in my chair with my index finger and create a consumable music video. Right. That, you know, it's not great. It's real, it's real kind of, uh, you know, earthy and organic, but it's fine for the tune. And I didn't have to, 
go through the $15,000 or the months of prep or the three days of shooting, you know, and all that stuff. So that just shows you that there's just, you know, so much you can do to, and then, then you have the way that you can get that content directly to people. I mean, it's just an amazing democratization of everything, as you said. Absolutely. I watched the video. I thought it was great. It hit the emotional touch points and you just went bananas on the guitar at the end, which I thought was awesome. Uh, if that was you, if that was you playing. Uh, Actually, that was John McNeil. That's all right, John, John McNeil. McNeil. John McNeil. He, I, I want to tell you, you're awesome. <laughs> he's ripping that up. He's the man. He is amazing. He, he is ripping that up. And I, I think, I think for VR to work for movies, it has to start. It doesn't have to, but I, I would like it to start in, in new types of theaters. In right. a, new, a new type of theater where there is an investment made to build out the entire vertical. So you own every piece of it as the, as the theater chain owner. And the audience comes into the theater and they're behind a lens that is sort of imperceptible to them. And then what's behind that lens is more space. So basically what you're making is the goggle. It's the idea of gotcha, have the people gotcha. sit in the goggle, right? So they're sitting in That's the goggle. That's brilliant, man. I like that. Yeah. Right. And now you, in the first film needs to be a horror film and you have a horror film, horror genre film in VR inside of a theater that's basically a giant goggle. That is brilliant. Now, but if you're at other sides of the space and you're looking at a 3D image inside that goggle, are you seeing you know, the, the left shoulder of the actor over here, you know, how do you deal with that from the point? Everyone's going to have a different point of view then. Right. Exactly. So the, what I thought about was what happens at like universal theme, uh, universal studios, the theme park. Yeah. Um, if you've ever been to that Harry Potter city, yes, where they have I have, Harry yeah. Potter ride. Yeah. yeah you, know, you don't really go anywhere. You sit That's right. and you think you're going somewhere, but they've created an illusion for you including wind and water and all these different things, you're not, you haven't gone anywhere. So again, it's a special kind of theater. Maybe you get those seats and that can give you the sense of movement that you would have if you were standing in your room in a VR square and you could walk around. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. That's where it's going, man. That's, that's, you're right. Almost that's a brilliant. movie as a ride. Right. Right. I think, right. I think that would get people out of the house. Don't you think? I, that's just I my think so. <laughs> no, I with you, and, and you know, then you it would be an experience that people may pay a little bit more for, right? Uh, because this separation of you know the tentpole three hundred million dollar movies, you know, it's cool to go see that. I went to see James Bond, you know, recently, and it's cool to see that in the in the regular theater. But I'm telling you, I enjoy my experience on my you know, seventy inch home HD badass 4k right. surround sound setup where I can, you know, go get a snack on my, you know, it's just a different experience at home. And I love the, the communal experience of going to the movie, but sometimes it's annoying when somebody's watching, looking at their phone next to you too. So I feel like know, the same yeah. thing has happened with sporting events, Andy, where the telecast has become so oh. advanced that you yeah. really have to think, do I want to watch this game at home in my home theater? Let's say if you have that, or do I want to go to the game? Cause there are definite downsides to going to the game and there are massive upsides. And you just have to hope that the, that the upsides outweigh the down downsides are drunk people, huge lines for the bathroom. If you, if, 
ladies that are listening to this, you probably can't relate, but in a lot of these sporting events, you're dealing with a trough situation in the bathroom. Not good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, long lines for hot dogs, hamburgers, pizzas, beer, whatever, but you're at the game. You're actually doing something with your real life. And there's to hear the entire crowd, let's say roar at a football game is such a unique experience. There's nothing like that. Your TV can't, it's the only thing the TV really can't simulate uh, exactly is the sound right. of a touchdown being scored and 70,000 people rejoicing at one time. It'll, it'll make your heart stop, but everything else about the telecast to me is superior. I mean, I'm seeing the players' faces up close. I see the detail. They've got 20 cameras. They've got three cameras on on cables above me that are sliding through. And it's like, how do you beat that? That's that's the they've called up with the live experience for sure. Well, the thing is, though, at that sporting event, when you experience that big, uh, loud, uh, irreplaceable thing, the reason you're enjoying it too is that you're not doing that by yourself. No one goes to a football game by themselves. They're going with their friend or a group of friends or buddies, and you're all having that energy together, you know? Yep. So it's, it's the same way with theatrical experiences that, you know, uh, you want to go see something that you, you can talk about, discuss, you know, or, or maybe, or just, you know, get blown away by some cool stunt or whatever. Uh, but a, yeah, it's just a laugh being track people. phenomenon. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Like the show cueing you, hey, that was funny. You should also laugh. Why don't we have a laugh track here on your show tonight? We should. We have can a laugh insert track. that. I have. I have all kinds of like. You got the gear right there. behind you, man. You could like yeah. push the key every time we want applause yes. or hilarious laughter. Okay. Yeah. Or if we say something shocking, we can have somebody like kind of like yell a little bit. Please or say oh yeah. or like something like that. Yeah. Like I, I have. I have. Thousands and thousands of sounds I can insert into this at any point. I could just make this completely goofy. <laughs> do it in post. Do it in post, man. We'll do, it, we'll, we'll, we'll do it in post. Um, what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making? Well, a simple one with indie filmmakers that I always make sure they're cognizant of is always capture good on-location sound. I mean, I hate to get down to such detail, but it is just, you know, they'll go out and make a film and they go cheap on capturing uh, dialogue on location. And look, a, 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 a viewer will forgive a visual cue, but not an audio cue. If they cannot hear the dialogue, you're going to be back in the studio looping all the dialogue. So that's just kind of a simple thing that anybody starting out with a low budget film doing their first short or whatever spend the money on a real sound person to, you know, capture on location audio. And the other thing is that I think sometimes people just kind of develop to death something without just going out and just get something done, you know, mm -hmm. just get it done. Just go make a movie. I mean, you know, even if it's a, a little sizzle reel of something, just shoot a scene. You know, if you've got an idea for something that you're dying to make this movie and you've got a 110 page script and you're like, I got to do it. This is the thing I'm going to do, man. I, this is my whole life is wrapped up this. But if you're not getting it done, you know, go shoot something, shoot a scene just to give somebody an example. If you're a director, you know, whatever, and, and go shoot something so you can share it with them, you know, get your friends together and, and try to get something done. Uh, just sometimes people just wait, thinking something's going to drop on top of them. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the other things. Love it. That's very, very sound advice. What happened in New York city in the MTV offices when you walked in with a VHS tape <laughs> of hard to make a living in the mid eighties? Oh my gosh. So, so it starts in a theme park in Virginia, uh, where I played in this country show again. Uh, and it was like a Vegas type show where, you know, we had the, uh, the backing band and we had six singer dancers up front and we played every country song you ever hated in 22 minutes in a medley. Right. And, uh, so the, the band was like, we were the cool guys in the back. And then you had three really cute girls and three dudes that would dance up front. Uh, like a Benetton commercial, you know, racially diverse. It was just perfect kind of theme park set up perfectly for the masses. And so really the show was supposed to last 22 minutes. And uh, Jody, my friend, the producer, still my friend, you know, 30 some years later, my best friend, uh, he was the drummer. I was a guitar player. And, And so after 476 shows, literally that summer, we would get to the end of our run and we got tired of playing that, that, that medley. And it literally, literally was like on the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again. She's a good hearted woman. I mean, just that much of the right. song, you know, just not much at all. And uh, so we got tired of playing it. So we would say, okay, it's 102 degrees out here. What can we do to really make it hard on our singer dancers? So we would try to do that 22 minute show in about 17 and a half minutes. Right. <laughs> and they're up there clogging, <laughs> they're clogging the whole show, right? They're like, and they're looking back at us like, cursing us out and everything. So that was fun. But anyway, I set that up to say that after the, the show at King's Dominion, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my musical career and my life. Right. And I had had met this girl who was one of the singer dancers, very cute. And so uh, I, I, you know, had this motivation to kind of do something big. And I had this song that I'd written and I was struggling as a musician. So I wrote the song on hard to make a living. It does not get any more simple than that. And I wrote this song and I had in my mind just this whole vision for the whole video, man. I had every scene of the song just kind of figured out in my head for some reason. So I said, well, I got to find a guy who's done a video that's been on MTV. This was in 1984, kind of the infancy of of, uh, MTV and stuff. There happened to be a guy in Richmond, Virginia named John Park, sweet guy, who had done a music video of a local band that actually had been on MTV. I said, well, that's the guy I want. So I go and I, you know, find my way to John Parks and his beautiful wife, Charlotte. And I, I meet him for the first time and I play my little cassette track. He said, oh, that's cool too, man. I like that. Really cool tune. Uh, what do you got? And I gave him my, you know, scratched out notebook full of ideas and my whole narrative of the, of the script and, and how to put it together. He said, Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we can do this. I said, yeah, man, I'd love to do it. So he got on board and then he said, look, normally this thing would cost about, probably $40,000, which was a lot of money for a music video in 1984. Huge amount. He said, we can, he said, we can probably do it for 20. I'm like, that's still a lot of money back in 1984. So I go to my dad and I said, man, I got to do this. You know, I, this is just, this is my career. It's my life. And, and my dad was so cool. He said, look, man, I'll help you with part of it. And uh, I will co-sign for a loan for the other part of it. You didn't have to go to college. I didn't pay for all your college. This will be your college, man. Just, you know, whatever. Because I I studied music at VCU, 
it says on my thing, I did go there, but I studied for like five minutes, you know, music. They weren't teaching me how to be a rock star. And I'm like, I'm out of here. So, no, right. so I actually convinced a lady at a bank to loan me like 15 grand uh, to make a music video. Right. And uh, which was crazy. So made the music video and we shot for like three days, built sets, really cool video, got it done. I'm looking at it going, wow, man, that's cool. We have a video now. Well, I got to get on MTV. So I get on the train and I get a little cheap briefcase and I put my video and I had it in three quarter format, beta format, VHS. I had all the formats ready to roll, take off to New York, you know, find myself, I found my way into the Warner communications lobby up there in New York city. And I'm sitting in the lobby and I walk up to the receptionist and I'm like, you know, I'm Andy. I'm from Virginia. I got a video. You guys show videos. What's up? You know, how can we, you know, yeah. someone should check it. She's very politely said, well, why don't you just leave it here? You know, we'll make sure somebody <laughs> takes a look at it. And thank you very much for coming. And I'm like, well, no, that's very nice. I really appreciate it. But look, I came all the way from Virginia. A lot of us in Virginia really put our heart and soul into this thing. And I, I just uh, not able to leave until I know that somebody has seen the video. Right. And she said, well, you know, wait out here for a while. Maybe I can find somebody to look at you. So I'm sitting there for a long time. And, and uh, I look kind of lonely, I guess. So this, this young lady walks past me walking out and she says, can I help you? I said, well, yeah. And then I gave her my sob story. And, and she said, I guess she felt sorry for me. She said, look, I'm going to go to lunch. When I come back, I'll take you back there and we'll look at your video. I'm like, cool. So I sit there for another hour, clock ticking, you know, in the lobby and, she comes back later. She says, Oh, you're still here. Okay. Come on. <laughs> so she, I grabbed my little briefcase. We go in the back of the office and they've got this huge, you know, CRT television on a big stand with wheels back in the day with a big three quarter deck under it. And this, this big monster uh, tube television. Yeah, okay. So I gave her the tape. She sticks it in. She starts watching it and she's looking at it. She goes, that's you. And I said, yeah, it's me. She said, oh, I thought you were like some agent or something like, no, that's you. And then she starts looking at it. And she goes, oh, this is good. So, oh, this is real good. This, this is really good. She said, you need to go down and talk to uh, to uh, this young lady done a Nickelodeon Nick Rocks video to go was a video show, which was the sister channel of MTV Nickelodeon at the time showed videos and they had a video show. So I'm like, OK, so I go downstairs to another thing and I show it to this other person and uh she goes, oh, this is cool. said, who owns the rights to it? I'm like, well, I own the rights to it. And she said, do you mind if we play it? I'm like, that's why I'm here. I want you to play it. Sure, no problem. So they actually put my video on a rotation on the video to go show. And it was between an REO Speedwagon video and a Tina Turner, what's love got to do with the video in rotation. And I had no record deal. It was like the stupidest move in the history of America that once again, here you are giving free content to yep. the man. Right? right. And they, but they played it for a while. So the idea was um, I produced a video. It will inspire a record label to say, Hey, they've got the marketing material. We're going to give the guy a deal. You know, we had a record deal going. And uh, so I actually talked to some management companies and got some things going and went out to LA and met with some people and the guy out there really loved the tune, loved some other tunes. He said, man, everybody, if you don't have spandex, big hair, and you're doing heavy metal, you're not going to get anywhere these days. At the time, it was all about that. And we did not yeah. have any of the above. We were more like Steely Dan, whatever. We were, it was a more 
kind of uh, esoteric kind of vibe you were doing. Plus the music video had a beginning, a middle and an end. Forget about that. You know, yeah. have to, people have to watch the whole thing yeah. you know, to kind of get it. So, but no, it's still, it's a cool, uh, a cool thing. And, uh, but I got kind of, you know, burnt out and disgusted with the whole process. Uh, well, then ironically, I had this one management company that was really seriously thinking they were going to like do something for us. And then it was symmetry management out of New York. And then he, he called me one day and said, look, man, we're going to have to throw all our power behind this other artist we just broke. And it was an artist uh, named Amy Mann. Yeah. And a band called Till, Till Tuesday, a song called Voices Carry. Ironically, Amy Mann from Richmond, Virginia. Wow. And they put all, and I'd never met her before or whatever, but they put all their weight behind it. So we were kind of just you know lost by the wayside there. So then I just, you know, came back to Richmond. And, uh, but the, the lesson of that is that in a moment when you think it's like the worst time and the worst thing that could ever happen to you, right? When you kind of, wow, I'll never make it, you know, life will never be what I dreamed it would be, right? And then I came back and uh, I started playing. Uh, we ran that band for a while. I started playing another band. Uh, and then my friend Jody, once again, who was not in the band with the video, but had gone off to tour and do some other things. He was back in Richmond. And he said, man, we've got a band. We've got a house gig at this hotel. We've got a four-piece horn section. We're playing Tower of Power and Earth, Wind and & Fire and, and all this cool stuff. And we need a, a guitar player that can sing, man. You need to come check us out. And at that point, I was getting ready to move to L.A. and work in, in film, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I said, okay, I'll come to hear the band. So I listened to the band and they just blew me away. It was just a killer, killer band. And, uh, and I said, man, okay. So I stayed with the band and that's where I met my wife. who was waiting tables there wow. at the bar. And that's what I met her. And so we've been married for 33 years, man. And, uh, so you never know. So that life puts you where you're supposed to be, man. And then, you know, I stayed in that band for, for several years and then started my own band off of that called No Small Feet. And we were basically a Little Feet cover band. We played tons of Little Feet songs and some original stuff. And we were trying to, you know, go down the path of doing original stuff for a while, but we never could find the continuity musically to find one direction. You know, I, I believe bands, to get in the music thing, bands as democracies never work, man. You yeah. got to have one vision, one leader, this is where we're going. You know, I, it's just, I've never seen a band as a democracy. You think it can work, but it, it doesn't. We got to get behind some vision as a, as an artist or some sound. Right. But we were all over the place with our sound. I was more kind of this new Orleans funky blues soul thing. And then my bass player, a friend of mine was a great musician. He was more into the Seattle thing that was starting to emerge at the time. So we never could put those two kind of grooves together. So, you know, then we had our first baby and I needed health insurance. <laughs> there you go. And we're, we come full circle in the conversation. This, is, this has been uh, an incredible <laughs> chat. And uh, I really appreciate the story. I couldn't agree more with bands. I had a band and that sense of democracy tore us apart as well. Um, oh, before I forget, before we wrap up, your song that you have out now, uh, the one you did in 2020, kind of a post-pandemic, during the pandemic, very personal song. It's called Unring the Bell. Everybody can go watch it on YouTube now. What was the inspiration for Unring the Bell? 
you know, it's pretty personal. Uh, but I think the message in it is that it kind of comes back to love, man, that no matter how tough things can be, you can, you can unring the bell. Unringing the bell is an impossible thing to do. One would think that's kind of, I came up with the hook on that, but you can, and it's really kind of going back to the, the, the core elements of love that is the fuel that can help anyone unring the bell, whatever challenge you're in front of, man, it's just, you got to go to love and the people that are around you that love you the most. And, uh, but the, the, the song came from this kind of personal space, but then also became a thing about our nation at the time. And all of us going through this really screwed up year and all of us wanting to erase 2020 and like putting behind is thinking that 2021 would be, you know, a new bright sunshiny day. And then of course, January 6th came on 2021. It kind of blew right. that notion, but but yeah, it was it was about putting that behind us. That's why the the website where you can you know see the video and you could uh, hear the tune down the tune is is it's actually it's unring twenty twenty dot com unring two zero two zero dot com and you can kind of see the video and you can hear the tune there. But th- this is a tune that Jody, my friend, once again, uh, the song you know came about because he was inspiring me, saying, "Man, you need to go back to your music." If you're having a hard time with something, go back to your music, go back to your music. And I did. And the song came together and then he just kept pushing me, man, we got to go in the studio. Cause I can just cut it on guitar at first and on my phone, record it on my phone. Right. And in mm-hmm. my memo thing on my phone and sent it to Jody. He said, I got an idea for the song I'm working on. He said, man, that's really good. You need to come in the studio. And he's got this amazing studio. And so we went in there, we just started working on it and working on it. And then I got my friend Keith Horn, who's an amazing bass player that was in Nashville forever. That's from Virginia. And he played bass and McNeil played guitar. We got amazing uh, mandolin player and all these just great musicians that came together to make this tune. And then we listened to it. We're like, man, that's good. Let's send it to Abbey Road. Yeah, <laughs> we sent yeah. it there to get mastered. And then I, I don't know if you listen to it uh, in, in phones, man, the production is pretty deep on it. You know, it's, it's really it came out well. And then, you know, of course I did the video with my finger and it's just kind of out there now. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'm not going to go schlep around playing clubs, trying to support some record. So I'm hoping it'll get a sync deal on something one of these days. Right. And uh, get it. it, It's kind of a good TV show song or, you know, some somewhere as a, you know, drop it in there. So. Yeah, I totally agree. And about the production too, just like it's, it's layered. It's, and it's, uh, it's a good listen. I've listened to it a few times. I listened on YouTube. I'm glad you shared the the uh, website as well. People can go to unring2020.com. And can you tell us where else we can find you or see some of your work? Are there any social media spots, uh, places on the internet, et cetera? Um, I think uh, if you, sorry, I should be prepared for that. You know, I'm just not very good at marketing myself in social media. But look, the Virginia Film Office website, filmvirginia.org filmvirginia spelled out.org and you can find all the information you need for locations uh i think if you google me up or search me on youtube uh, uh andy edmonds uh hard to make a living is in there you know wow. find that on there and there's some other tunes i'll just send you some of my other tunes uh i've got a pretty 
cool song called Find Time to Be Alive. That's this really good tune. And that's on some site called broadjam.com. I mean, I loaded those things up years ago on broadjam.com. If you look up Andy Edmonds on broadjam.com. Mm-hmm. And um, there's one song on there that was on some peer-reviewed site years ago. And it's a song called Lost in Dixie, actually. And it's kind of a little feet rip-off song that I wrote that we used to play in my band live. Uh, and that song went through this peer-reviewed website through the rankings, through all the categories, and it became number one earth. I mean, through thousands of songwriters wow. around the world, man. And uh, I don't know how, but apparently people like the tune. It's a pretty good tune. It's a great piano. Uh, Lee Covington playing keyboards on it. I think you'd dig it. I'll, I'll send you the link to that, too. But I think that's on broadjam.com slash Andy Edmonds, and that one's called Lost in Dixie. I've got that written down, and I'm going to go do that right away. And Andy, we'll, we'll end on this. You have a dog named River, and uh, it's my understanding that River wrote a letter to the Cape Charles <laughs> Virginia City Council. Man, you did your research, didn't you? <laughs> River could run for mayor of Cape Charles, Virginia, which is a little seaside town uh, that we have a, a vacation home there. It's like Mayberry on the water, this little funky oh, wow. little town of a thousand people which is very similar to the town I grew up in a town of a thousand people, but this is on the water. So it's a sexier place to be, but they were trying to enact an ordinance uh, to require a leash law on the beach. So of course we, all of us go out with our dogs on the beach in the morning, man, and let them run wild. If they couldn't do that, they would go crazy. Right. So this uh, uh, river felt was just a major injustice to his canine uh, entertainment. So River decided to write a letter to city council uh, and, and profess that this is an injustice that should not be endured. <laughs> and it's a pretty interesting letter of, of how he wrote it. And uh, uh, it's a pretty good, passionate plea. And uh, yeah, people were pretty excited about it. And uh, hey, look, they did that. They rescinded the ordinance. Wow. River one, dogs are free on the beach in Cape Charles and life is good. It, do you still have a copy of the letter? I do somewhere. Yeah. You haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. I would love if, if you would give us the honor of putting that on our website, on our blog page, and kind of connecting it to this conversation when it when it publishes. I will. I'll go find it because I think it's the actual published one would be in the Cape Charles Mirror newspaper somewhere. So I'll see if it's there. Cause I, you know, I don't know if I don't know where I've, I've got it somewhere, the actual text. <laughs> I'll have to ask River where he put it. <laughs> River's got it under his dog bed right now. He keeps exactly. He got it filed over there somewhere. That's yeah, amazing. That's amazing. I, I can't wait to get though, that. That's going to be a blast. For the dog, though, voice to text works better than humans. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> for for now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, for, for sure. And uh, I've, I've, I'll have to say I've actually gotten into some trouble with voice to text when you're in a text thread that you don't realize you're in and the phone is always listening to you. So then you're talking out loud, maybe to yourself, or let's say you stubbed your toe and you're cursing all of a sudden <laughs> Siri hears that types it into a text. And, and, and there's that moment where she says, do you want me to send this? And if you say anything, but no, the thing shot off and you got some explaining to do. So some of these things are too useful for their own good. They have to sort of understand humans a little bit more. Uh, that being said, I think after this conversation, uh, no one could could have a more human 
a moment than this. This was incredibly human, incredibly great. Uh, just I learned a ton, not just about you, which is normally the the goal, but I learned a lot about Virginia as well. So I've got to take a trip to Richmond and I hope to get to see you in person, have a coffee, have a cocktail. Uh, I think we have a lot in common. We'd have a good time. I would love to welcome you here and we will have some fun, man. I'll take you to some great restaurants. I'll take you to Jody's studio. We'll check it out. I would love that. That'd be amazing. Let's, and you'll let's come here and produce happen. a movie though. You got to come here and make a movie. That's exactly right. We got to, we got to, you, you know what I'll, you know what I always say though, Chris, uh, and it's so true that uh, making friends hell of a lot more important than making movies. So I'm glad to be with you tonight, man. You're a great guy. And uh, it was just a great conversation. And I look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, let's do a round two. And coming from you, that means the, the world to me. So thank you so much. And uh, I'll talk to you very soon, it sounds like. Sounds good, man. Take All it right. easy. Be Bye. good. Bye. 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 Right, you too. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Banzai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F L A M E I N U R H E A R T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.